0: Well, if you have been worshiping with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we recently started a sermon series called From Ruins to Restoration, which is a look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And two weeks ago, Pastor Nate began by giving the background of how the Israelites had repeatedly turned away from God and broken their covenant promise. And so God allowed them to be vanquished and conquered by the Babylonians, who took them as slaves into exile and who destroyed the city of Jerusalem, tearing down the temple and its walls. And last week, you'll remember, Pastor Nate preached about how God moved in the hearts of the people. He moved in the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to allow them to go back to Jerusalem. And he worked in the hearts of those who were in exile so that they would go and do the work that he had for them. And so today we are continuing by looking at the book of Ezra, in chapters 3 and 4. And in chapters 3 and 4, what we see first is the restoration of their worship. Now, when I began as worship coordinator here at Faith, one of the first things I did, it was either in my first or second meeting, I sat down with all of our worship team leaders, and I said, open-ended question, just want a discussion, what is worship? That was it. And we talked about that for at least an hour. You know, we talked about some of the more nitty-gritty of it, like, well, it's, it's singing and prayer and reading our Bible. And we talked about, well, how you can live your life as an act of worship and dedicate everything you do to God. And, and we talked about just what worship was. And I don't know if we came up with this definition at that meeting or if it's something that I found later, but I really, really like this definition of worship. It's this. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Extravagant love and extreme submission. You see, that is what we do when we worship. We look to God and say, God, you are good and we give you all the love we have. And you are so much greater than us that we submit our wills to yours. It's very much us up to God. But there's another quote about worship that I really, really like, um, biased towards C.S. Lewis, but it's the C.S. Lewis quote about worship, and he says, In the process of being worshipped, God communicates his presence to men. See, in other words, when we worship, we get a glimpse of what it's like to be in the presence of God. It's the closest we can get to being in the presence of God here on earth, And if you've been following our Bible reading plan this year, you know that it takes a lot to be able to enter into the presence of God, doesn't it? We've looked at, we're up to the book of Judges now, and all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's all these rules and laws about the sacrifices that need to be made so the people could enter into the presence of God. Because God is holy, and we are sinful. And we need a sacrifice to cleanse us of our sins and make atonement for those sins. And as New Testament Christians, we know that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a a precursor, a shadow, a glimpse of what we would see in this ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us and rising again for our sins. So that we didn't need to sacrifice a lamb every year, but that one sacrifice redeemed us forever. However, in the Old Testament, Jesus had not yet come, and the exiles returning to Jerusalem needed to make themselves right with God in order to worship him. And so they needed to sacrifice, and that means they needed to rebuild their temple. Now, the book of Ezra is split, uh, the chapters three and four, there's three very clear different stories going on And uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today, the three different stories. And I'll give you a little preview of them. The three parts to Ezra 3 and 4. First, rebuilding the altar, and that's Ezra 3, 1 through 6. Second, laying the temple foundations, Ezra 3, 7 to 13. And then the opposition to rebuilding that they face in Ezra 4. And I believe we can learn something from each one of these points. Each one of these points individually will tell us something about what it means to worship. But let's first begin with the rebuilding of the altar. Look what it says in Ezra 3.1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So, a little time line review for you here. In Ezra 1, we hear that in the first year of King Cyrus's reign, he issues the decree that the exiles in Babylon could return home. We don't know what month that is, we just know it's in the first year. And then later in Ezra, we learn that the trip takes about four months over 900 miles, these large caravans crossing back to enter into Jerusalem. And so when you factor in the time it would have taken for Cyrus to issue his decree, for the decree to go out, the people to hear it, the people to then gather their things and cross the four months to get back to Jerusalem, When we read that in the seventh month, they came and built the altar, that is pretty much right away. That's pretty much the equivalent of they got their stuff, they took it, they dropped it off, they went straight to Jerusalem to rebuild the altar. It was that important to them that before they did anything else, before they built their walls, before they made sure that they were safe and secure, they built the altar of the Lord. And they did this because they needed to show their dependence on the Lord. Look what it says in Ezra 3.3. 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built an altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. And another way that this verse has been translated is not despite their fear, but because of their fear. Of the people around them they built this altar and they had so much to fear they had so much to lose they had just been granted their homeland again after 70 years and their cities had no walls no protection they had come over in caravans of families with elderly people with them with young children with them they weren't one big massive army no they were pretty defenseless when they returned And if their enemies, which surrounded them on all sides, had chosen in that moment to attack them, the odds were not in their favor, it would have gone well. And so they knew they needed to turn to the one who could protect them. And that is only the Lord. You see, they knew that by putting God first, they could trust in his strong deliverance. And this is something that we see all throughout the Bible, and we see it a lot in the Psalms. And, uh, One of the most famous psalms, Psalm 23, King David says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The Israelites, the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem, were in the presence of their enemies. And instead of looking outward, they looked upward to God. They didn't look to the king of Persia. They didn't look to their own armies or any human organization in this world. No, only God can offer true safety. And that leads me to the first thing we can learn from Ezra 3 and 4. And it's this. Prioritize worship first. We must prioritize our worship first. Is worship the thing that you prioritize first in your life? In this time of the digital church, where we're worshiping from home, are you fully committing first to that worship? I know I have been guilty of this. We turn on our service, we load up Facebook, we have it streaming to our TV, and it becomes almost like another TV show to me sometimes, doesn't it? A show that maybe I'll sing along to. Sometimes I'll pull out my phone, check my emails, maybe see I have a Facebook notification, check that. I know I have been guilty of that. And it's so much harder now that we are surrounded by the distractions of our everyday life. It's easy to put worship first when you have to come physically to a building where all your regular distractions are gone. But we must focus on putting our worship first, and we must make sure we are depending on God first, and that we don't let the stresses and distractions of this life draw away our focus we must not build the walls in our life to keep our enemies without. Sorry. We must not try to build the walls in our life to keep out our enemies without first building the altar of our hearts to worship the Lord. I love how Matthew Henry, uh, he's a theologian who talks about this passage in Ezra. He says this They, meaning the exiles who returned to Jerusalem, They could not immediately have a temple, but they would not be without an altar. Abraham, wherever he came, built an altar, and wherever we come, though we may perhaps want or lack the benefit of the candlestick of preaching and the showbread of the Eucharist, which is communion, yet if we bring not the sacrifices of prayer and praise, we are wanting in our duty, for we have an altar that sanctifies the gift ever ready. Because of the good news we have in Jesus Christ, we don't need to go to the temple to worship. We can worship now on the altar of our hearts all the time, and it must be our first priority. So that is what we learn from the building of the altar. But let's look to the laying of the foundations of the temple. Now we're told that in the second month of the second year, they began the work on the temple foundations. And this is what the next verse says here that we're going to look at. Ezra 3, 10 through 11. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And it's not an accident that this is the language that they used. See, this, throughout the whole process of rebuilding the temple, they were very careful to try to copy the building of King Solomon's first temple. They used the same cedar wood from the same country to build uh, the wood for the foundation, and they got the Levites to do the same work that they had done in King Solomon's time. And even the language they used mirrored the language that we saw in the dedication of the first temple of King Solomon. Look at what it says in Second Chronicles 5.13. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison, notice the trumpeters again, to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. See, they use the exact same language because they want so closely to copy the glorious temple of King Solomon. But something different happens than when the first temple was dedicated. It goes a little bit differently. See, we get a very mixed reaction to what should have been just a joyous occasion. Many people, they cry out with joy shouting praises, but look what happens in Ezra 3, 12 to 13. But many of the older priests, the Levites, and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise. That is not what you expect or what you necessarily want when you're dedicating a church, is it? For people to be weeping, weeping aloud. And 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 why do we think they were weeping? Well, they had hoped that they would be mirroring King Solomon's temple. That it would be a redo, basically, of the old temple that had been destroyed. But they looked at the foundation and saw that is a smaller foundation than King Solomon's temple. And the Ark of the Covenant was gone, whether it had been taken by enemies or hidden away so it wouldn't be taken by enemies, no one knew but the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, were missing. And most importantly, the very glory of God's presence didn't descend. This is what happened in King Solomon's temple dedication. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the cloud was the presence of God. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's very presence was in that temple. And when they dedicated the foundations, they did not see the cloud of God, the presence of God descend. Something was missing. Their worship experience wasn't the same as it had been or as they expected or what they wanted it to be. But I believe it is significant that the sounds of weeping and the sounds of praise mingle together indistinguishably. You see there's no sense in Ezra 3 of judgment because the people wept. There's no sense of shame that they were weeping. No, it is one sound that rose up. The weeping and the praising joins together. And those that wept were there, they were still included, and though they were despairing, they were still there worshiping. And that leads us to our second application. We must worship in every season and support the worship of those in every season. See, it's very easy to worship when things are going well. But when life gets hard, it's hard to worship, isn't it? It's hard to worship. It's hard to get out of bed when you don't have the energy or when grief is weighing down on you. And it would be hard enough on its own, but sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, it's made a little bit worse when we get to church and we see so many people smiling, happy, ready to clap and praise God, you know it reminds me of uh, something that happened when I was in college. I was in a, a show called Shakespeareance. and it was a Shakespeare show with scenes from Shakespeare and musicals from songs that were based on or song, songs from musicals that were based on Shakespeare. And we would go around to different high schools in the area and perform Shakespeare. And my best friend, best man at my wedding, he was in that company with me in that touring company with me. And, uh, you know, there was one morning we had to get up early. We're on the bus. We're all tired. And he was just being really negative. Just, oh, I don't want to be doing this. I'm so tired. Why do we, I don't want to. And I just turned to him and I said, can you just, can you just be happier? I mean, could you just try to be a little bit happier and cheer up for our benefit, please? And he looked at me and he said, Matthias, I've been diagnosed with depression. No, I can't just cheer up. And that hit me like a gut punch. Because one, I didn't know that my friend was going through something like that. And two, I had just said the thing, the only thing that could have made the situation worse. I told him, just cheer up. And sometimes, church can feel like that. It feels like we get the spiritual equivalent of, hey, life's hard, but just cheer up. Friends, depression is real. Stress and the burdens of life are real. Spiritual warfare is real. And we must be prepared to embrace our brothers and sisters and say, come as you are, be here however you are. And if you are feeling hurt or lost or angry or doubting, I would urge you to come to church anyway. I know it is very hard. In the Old Testament, King David, he was the great king of Israel. He was called a man after God's own heart. But in the book of Psalms, many of which he wrote, 30% are laments. They are cries of despair going up to God. There are questions going up to God. There's anger going up to God. And they are intensely worshipful. There's a song that I love by Matt Boswell, contemporary Christian uh, composer. It's called, Lord from sorrows deep I call. And it's based on Psalm 42. It goes like this. Lord from sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken torn and ruined from the fall hear my desperation for so long i've pled and prayed god come to my rescue even so the thorn remains still my heart will praise you And that last line, still my heart will praise you, sometimes that's not a promise, that's just a hope, isn't it? That still somehow our hearts might be able to praise the Lord. And the chorus of the song goes like this oh my soul put your hope in god you're still my rock i will praise him sing oh sing through the raging storm you're still my god my salvation you know it's a powerful song and it's the song i sing when i don't know how to pray When life is weighing me down and the stresses of life are pushing down on me and I don't know what to pray, I will sing that song. And what if Faith Covenant Church became a place where people could come and shout aloud joyfully for the good that God had done and weep for the stresses and trials and tribulations of life? And no one was judging them. There was no sense of embarrassment. It was just a unified cry going up to the Lord. John Wesley wrote this about this passage. He said, The mixture of sorrow and joy here is a representation of this world. Here on earth we can scarce discern the shouts of joy from the noise of the weeping. Let us learn to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. And let that be something that faith covenant is known for. So that is what we learn from the foundation foundation of the temple being laid. The third thing we can talk about here is the opposition they faced to their rebuilding. And this is all of chapter 4. Look what it says, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and we've been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And on the surface, this looks amazing, right? The people that they had feared, their enemies that surrounded them said, hey, we're going to help you out and, and get this, we're going to worship with you. What could possibly be wrong with that offer? Well, it's helpful to know a little bit of the history of what was going on at the time. You see, these people, the enemies of Benjamin and Judah, they were uh, a group of people when Israel split into two kingdoms. Eventually, the Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel the same way the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, and they took the people away. They deported them far away into the Assyrian empire, left a few people remaining in that area. And then later, another Assyrian king took people from another part of the world that he had conquered and deported them to this area. And when those groups started mixing, what happened was they decided they were going to keep all their gods that they had had in the other part of the world and, just to keep the peace with what was going on, also worship the God of Israel. See, they said, we can just do it all. We can worship everybody. And what we see from that is that there's not really a good mixing going on there. When we look in our uh, Bible reading, we know that when people try to mix the practices of worshiping different gods and different religions together, it never goes well for Israel. And so the leaders They politely say to them, "Um, no, no, sorry, Uh, Cyrus told us to do this. We we don't really need your help. But really what they were trying to do, they were trying to avoid the mistakes of their past. They were trying to keep things separate, keep their focus on God, because when polytheism started mixing into their worship, it never went well. And in fact, that's what the prophets told them was the reason they were overthrown and exiled in the first place. So the leaders, they deny these people and say, no, we don't need your help. And in response to this, their enemies start hindering their plans. Ezra 4, 4 and 5. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And the gap between where we were with Cyrus, king of Persia, and Darius, king of Persia, is approximately 38 years. For nearly four decades, they just kept harassing the building of the temple, making it a little bit harder for them to get their work done, just messing with them so they couldn't focus on the work they needed to do. They couldn't outright attack them because King Cyrus had given their protection. They did all these little annoyances, and unfortunately, that campaign of harassment worked. Ezra four twenty four. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And church, this is where we get to our third application, and it is this. We cannot let frustrations and distractions in our life stop our worship. We must be on guard that all the minor annoyances of life don't get in our way. See, I'm not talking about the big trials and tribulations. No, just just the everyday stuff that tells us that worship is kind of an inconvenience. The voice that says, look, you're tired. You, You really need that extra hour of sleep. And so you don't quite get up in time to make it to church. Or you have too many errands to do much stuff going on so uh, i didn't actually get time to pray or read my bible life is always going to be full of these little frustrations and distractions and we must be on guard so that we won't give up the work of worship and sacrifice like the exiles did in jerusalem so let me summarize here where we've been we saw the three parts to Ezra 3 and four: the rebuilding of the altar, the laying the temple foundations and the opposition that they faced in the rebuilding. And we learned three things that we could apply to our own worship life. We need to prioritize worship first. We must worship in every season and support the worship of those in every season. And we cannot let the frustrations of life stop our worship. Ezra 3, it started on such a high note, didn't it? Rebuilding the altar, starting up the sacrifices, and then it just got more discouraging as we went. But church, there is hope. See, the book of Ezra isn't done yet. On August 16th, we're going to be continuing with Ezra 5 and 6. And without giving too much away, Ezra 5 begins by mentioning the prophet Haggai. If you're looking for some extra credit, uh, I would advise you to go onto our website, faithecc.org, and look up our sermon series on the minor prophets from 2018. See, now with all this we learned about in Ezra, you have the full context to know what the prophet Haggai was talking about, which Pastor Nate preached on back in 2018. I re-listened to it this week, and knowing the background helped me understand that sermon in a whole new light. Church... Worship is so important. It is so important. In the words of Karl Bart, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. It is my prayer that Faith Covenant Church will be a place filled with people committed to worshiping wholehearted and unashamedly in the good times and the bad, and that worship would be the defining characteristic of who we are.